Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell Show. It is a Tuesday, March the 15th. Year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll along as we kind of get our foot in the door of spring here. Maybe our, our last little cold snap up around our way. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thrilled you're with us. Thank you for spending some time with us. The most precious thing you have. We're not going to waste it. We're going to turn down the noise on some stories that are going on out there in the news cycle. A uh, couple different things going on. We're going to talk about the destruction of Jeff Zucker, who until recently had been running CNN. We're going to touch on that story. Also, uh, a story out of Long Island. You know, we always like to end things with a happy note. A great local community leader, a woman who has done all kinds of things for a community. We highlight those because we spend way too much time on talking heads on TV and not enough on folks like her who are the bedrock of our communities. That'll be the way we end our show. Also, I'm going to go down to Georgia. Uh, a story about a local elections office that has been absolutely under siege by people who have ate up and drank all the Kool-Aid on all the conspiracy theories about elections offices. We're going to touch on that place. Folks, your election officials are your neighbors on for the most part, especially if you're in a smaller or rural community. These folks are not your enemies. They're your neighbors. You can go talk to them. They're not some alien being out to get you. Don't believe the hype. We will touch on that story also on what is and isn't election fraud a little bit later on the program. But let's start um, right here because we have one of our favorite guests on today, Dennis Saunders, uh, our good friend. He's on this program frequently, uh, Had took a little exception. We were talking about labor and labor unions the other day. He has thoughts on that. Uh, he's a Flint, Michigan guy, has strong turns. Both his parents were auto workers, wants to talk some union labor. We're going to do that with him. Also get into his great work he's been writing about the fall of Sears and Kmart. Was it capitalism? Eh, not really. A lot of backstory to that you'll want to believe. But first, let's talk about this story from NBC uh, LX. Um, Americans more accepting, this is the headline, of refugees from Ukraine than the Middle East and Central America. I'm going to read that headline one more time. America's more accepting of refugees from Ukraine than the Middle East and Central America. YouGov, in collaboration with NBCLX, surveyed 2,000 U.S. adults about whether the U.S. should take refugees from Ukraine, El Salvador, Syria, and Afghanistan. This is actually multiple polls that they did. And the nut of this story is looking at the number. What's clear, this is a quote, is that there is more support among Americans for accepting refugees fleeing violence from Ukraine than from Afghanistan, Syria, or El Salvador, explained Carl Bialik, the U.S. politics editor at YouGov America via email. Democrats' support was largely the same for refugees from each place, 
Republicans said 48% would, would accept Ukrainians, but only 19-32% for each of the other three countries. Looking at the generational splits, the support for Syria, 42% or El Salvadorian, 36%. Refugees among adults 45 and older is much lower than it is for adults 18 to 45, or it goes up to 51 and 45% respectively. No generation has a bigger discrepancy in refugee support than seniors 65 and up had between Ukrainian refugees 70%. And those from Syria, 30%, or El Salvador, 35%. Okay, sit down and buckle up because this is going to be one of them grown folk talk things. Uh, this is not the tickle your ears and tell you what you like to hear program. That's down the radio dial or in a different podcast. You can go find that. We do real grown up folk talk here. Let's be honest about why we're okay with Ukrainian refugees and not Middle Eastern and or those from Central and South America. Do we really need to explain this any further or you want to just come to this realization to yourself? Oh, they're a different color. Oh, they got a different religion. Oh, they got this, that, and the other. They're different. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if you think there's something wrong with that, the problem isn't them. It's you. Now, I understand that there's some bad people in there out in the world who wants to come and hurt us and they use the migration and immigration system to do that. But we have ways of screening for that. Don't just start broad brush painting refugees. Remember, we're not talking about just the normal flow of people. I'm all for a secure southern border. I'm all for good, better immigration policies. I think we should have very clearly defined legal immigration because that's causing a lot of the illegal immigration problem because folks can't figure it out. It's an absolute tragedy that people doing it the right way have an almost impossible task. That should be fixed. We can do a lot of cleaning our own house in order for a lot of this. Refugees are a different beast. These are people fleeing. They have an immediate issue at hand. They're trying to get away from war zones. They're trying to get away from economic collapses. They're get, trying to get away from natural disasters, whatever the case may be. Refugees are not your normal immigrants. They're people that desperately need a new place to live. You want to make America better? You want to make America greater? To use that phrase? You want an America that's strong for generations to come? What you need is more Americans. We now have the lowest birth rate we've ever had. You know who would make some great Americans? Refugees. People who in their hour of darkness and at the low point of their entire lives saw America as the land of plenty, the land of opportunity, the city on the hill it used to be called back in the Reagan speech. Imagine that America holding up the torch like the Statue of Liberty does in the Bay in New York City, saying, come, we'll give you a fresh start. We'll give you a new life. You don't think those people would make good Americans? Oh, I know assimilation's a complicated thing, and they may not talk like us, and they may not believe like us, and they may have some weird customs. That's all granted. Guess what? So did the Italians when they came. So did the Irish when they came. So did all the people who came from everywhere else. So did the people that came up from South America and Mexico. So did the Canadians that came down here fleeing the British. You can go down the list of any ethnic group you ever want. Eastern Europeans. What about the slaves that were freed and had to find a way to adapt? We got all kinds of different folk. A lot of them don't look like you. A lot of them don't sound like you. A lot of them don't believe like you. But you know what? That's what makes America great. We are the most diverse, pluralistic society on the face of the earth. We have all kinds of cultures and all kinds of backgrounds, and we mesh it all together and we make it work. Not perfectly. We got plenty of issues. We got lots of racial issues and cultural issues to hash out. 
but you want a better America, you better get more Americans and people who are refugees coming here. And then they have the option to either go back to their homeland when they have a chance, or they can get into the system and start working towards citizenship. They'll make great Americans because they'll appreciate things that we no longer appreciate, like not getting bombed in our sleep, like not having our cities blown up around us, like not having to worry about teaching their children how to make a Molotov cocktail to try to survive one more day. You don't think those folks have a taste for freedom? You don't think they would harbor our most deeply held values of freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly and freedom to govern ourselves? Don't let your biases and prejudices and small-minded thinking getting in the way of us getting more Americans. You love America. You want America to grow. You want your civic organizations to grow. You want your churches to grow. You want your schools to grow. You want your businesses to grow. You should want America to grow. You should want it to get better and faster and stronger. And accepting refugees from other parts of the world is a good place to start. Yes, we should vet them carefully. Yes, we should make sure there's no untoward people sneaking in with them. And we definitely need to fix our broken immigration system on top of all this. But refugees are not the problem. And if you got a problem with certain kinds of refugees, but not other refugees, you need to go find yourself a mirror. Ask yourself some hard questions. Why those ones from Europe are okay, and those from the other parts of the world are not. Because the problem ain't the refugees. It's us. And shame on us for that. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I want to touch on it because it's important background information. Again, we only have so much time on Hertel. You've got to do your own homework. It's up to you to know what's going on in the world. We just point you direction. Rolling Stone has a long, long piece out about Jeff Zucker. Now, for those of you that don't know, Jeff Zucker until recently ran CNN. Before that, he worked at NBC, ran things like the Today Show, The Apprentice, uh, Donald Trump's erstwhile reality show, things like this. Uh, Tatiana Siegel wrote this piece in Rolling Stone. Now, one caveat, we do know Rolling Stone has had their issues. We know about the frat house in Virginia. We know they basically made that story up out of whole cloth, so take that for what it's worth. But a lot of this about Zucker in this piece is stuff that was known, how they dealt with Andrew Cuomo, all the scandals at CNN. It even goes back to him running cover, at least it looks that way, for Matt Lawyer and his sexual abuse of people inside of NBC. The point is, everybody knew how he conducted his business, and yet he was given the reins to a news organization. I encourage you to go read this piece. I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, it's very long. It's very detailed. It's very well sourced. But I want to reemphasize most of this was known. You could have known this from your phone or your computer just by Googling it and reading it. Nothing in here is surprising to anyone. And the word I'm going to use for how the power structures work with people like Zucker is this, incestuous. These people get in power. They get in power with media. And they use things like news gathering and journalism as a coat to cover up their power and their money and their ambitions and their egos. It's the story we see over and over again. We see it in government. We see it in religion. We see it in homes. We see it everywhere. Somebody who's so important, people say, and they themselves build up people to believe that they have to be excused and everything they do is then justified and they get away with it. And a lot of people get hurt. I want to go down to the very bottom of this piece because that very dynamic is still at play. Quoting from the piece, 
Now, for many who are waiting to see the one-time whiz kid, meaning Zucker, will reinvent himself again. Through a journalism job would seem out of the question, given all that went down at two networks on his watch, a return to show business is within the realm of possibility. He has also said he would love to run the Miami Dolphins. That ain't going to happen. And hasn't ruled out a run for office himself. That's not going to happen either. Whether he lands a former colleague, as sure it'll be on his feet. Quote, listen to this quote with what I just said. Don't hold the garage sale for Jeff Zucker, says one. Someone will hire him. He's too smart. He's too smart. Who cares how smart he is? We have a body of work that he's an unethical person. He's bad for media. We need good media in this country. We need good journalism in this country. But we have a history of this person. I don't care how smart he is. I don't care how connected he is. I don't care if he can get the ratings up. This is not somebody who should be given power in the United States of America. But this is how things are excused, whether it's abusers or government officials or whoever example you want to get. They're so smart. We can't do without them. They're so brilliant. They're so wonderful. Oh, God, are they talented. And the bad wickedness they do gets swept under the rug and innocent people punished for it. And they don't. They just float to the next thing. Look at the blast damage by Zucker at CNN here. And I'm not just picking on CNN because there's a Jeff Zucker at lots of organizations, both in the media, in the government, in churches, in schools. You find a big enough organization, you're going to find somebody like Zucker, somebody who abuses, somebody who covers things up, somebody who does things unethically to cut corners and has a group of followers who will seal clap and demand that you do so because they're just so brilliant that we can't do without them. And it's a lie right out of the pit of hell. And we'll keep hearing it over and over again. Don't ever get dazzled by the nonsense of talent. Believe what people tell you about them and their actions. And when they tell you that they're bad people, just believe that. No amount of talent, no amount of ratings, no amount of power, no amount of whatever your goal is, is worth the damage to human beings that person will do in the name of their own talent and glory. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. He is back. Dennis Sanders, our good friend uh, up in the Twin City area. He is a writer. He's a commentator. He's also a local pastor, man that wears many, many, many hats and does them all very well. He also has his own uh, platform that we're going to talk about in a minute to do some writing. And he also joins us at Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, Dennis, how are you, my friend? I am doing well. Doing very well. Always thrilled to talk to you, especially on this, because uh, we've been kind of kicking around wanting to talk about this for a while. But uh, we were covering labor a while back. You did a little bit of pushback of how we covered labor. But let's get the bona fides first, because you're from one of the great labor areas of the world, Flint, Michigan. Yes, I was born and raised in, in Flint. Uh, both my parents were um, auto workers. So that meant that they were both members of the United Auto Workers, um, different locals, but both members, union members. So you've got that strong union background. You grew up in that area. But you've also seen the after effects where, you know, those great union jobs, those great union benefits didn't really play out for everybody too awful well, did it in the long run? No. And that's that's kind of the hard thing is um, growing up as I did in the 70s and 80s, Flint had a that was the 
thing that was going on in, in the city. In the Flint area alone, there were about 80,000 people that worked for General Motors. Um, and for those who don't know, General Motors actually had its start in Flint. Today, it is probably around 8,000. So that's, you, as you can tell, it's a huge amount of, of jobs that were lost that really, really changed the city in ways that are, for, I think, for a lot of people, unimaginable. Yeah, and this is a story, um, you're talking about Flint. Uh, you can talk about Youngstown, Ohio, where exactly. I have family that just decimated Black Monday, one of the, the mm -hmm. real labor stories in the history of the U.S., Pittsburgh, anywhere in the Rust Belt. Um, what you tell me, because you grew up with that, it's part of your DNA, that blue collar union labor, something that was a lot of pride in that. People said, I'm a union guy, and they meant it, and it meant something. Try to explain that to somebody of a later generation that that's that just thinks of Detroit as, you know, the Detroit area and the Flint area and the economic uh, recessions that happened as that faded away. Try to take people back to that time growing up in that time when that was your whole identity almost, wasn't it? It pretty much was. And it was a kind of an age of people. It was sort of in some ways a family. Um, lots of things that GM sponsored that were made up part of the community. And I think people had pride. This was something that you could go into without going to college and make actually a, a fairly good um, salary that you could support a family on. And so I think the cost of the kind of the how people lived and everything was was pretty good. Obviously, we weren't making as much as doctors or things to that extent. But I think for um, people working in manufacturing, it was it was um, fairly good pay. It allowed people to do things they probably wouldn't have been able to do. And I think especially for African-Americans who um, kind of like my dad came up from the South to places like Michigan for more opportunity, it, it did get them that. It got them more greater opportunity, greater economic benefits that they um, had they would have never had had they just stayed in the South. Yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. Okay, so the next step of that journey, though, of course, is the unions diminish. We know unions in union labor specifically in the United States of America is at its lowest form of basically recorded since we started tracking it. Um, we know the industrials have gone down. You just mentioned it. Do we overblow how benevolent companies used to be? Was it union power that balanced it out? There seems to be a lot of myth-making and legends involved in these sorts of things. Try to cut through some of that for us. What, what was it that changed so bad? It, wasn't, it can't all be one and all the other. How do you kind of foresee it looking back on it now, and especially with the way you've been writing about it? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there were companies and people who believed that if you wanted to have um, people buying your products, you had to pay them well. Um, they believed in trying to help their local communities. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I did recently, a podcast on um, someone by the name of J. Irwin Miller, he was the um, CEO of Cummings Engine in um, Indiana. And there was actually an interesting article in the Atlantic kind of about his all the things that he did to help benefit that local community, um, you know, from helping, you know, bringing kind of world renowned architects to build 
public buildings to all of that. But it was also unions as well that um, it's kind of that unions were pushing for for better wages, um, for safer working conditions, um, just things to that extent that they were pushing for whether and that sometimes meant going on strike um, to do that. Uh, one of the things that was um, really a part of Flint lore and part of labor lore is the 1936-37 sit-down strike um, in Flint, uh, where several of the factories, they basically literally stopped um, and sat down. And this was simply for that at that time to getting labor recognition. The company, General Motors, didn't want to recognize the union. And this was a way for them to kind of make that possible. And I think once that happened, you know, Again, it brought forth things like better benefits, healthcare, retirement, things that in a lot of cases we take for granted was done really because of labor. But it's not all, all labor and it's not all benevolent companies, it's both. And I think in some ways we've lost both of those things in our modern culture. See, I know that you know coming from West Virginia, if there was ever a group of people that ever needed a union, it was coal miners. Um, cause you know, they owned you, they owned you with the script. You lived in a company house. They paid you with company script. It, it was terrible. What was going on with the coal miners? You can do it with any other industry as well. But at the same time, the unions kind of warped and developed. They were not always the benevolent organizations. They should have been either. Were they? No, I, I think that's also important to know too. Unions sometimes also had a racist history. Um, they wouldn't necessarily include African-Americans um, in, in their unions. That, that changed over time, but that wasn't always the case. And I think even in modern day, they've been slow to adapt to kind of the changing nature of um, the market. Um, as we've become a more globalized society, you know, we have to find ways of how do we continue to support things like trade not necessarily to the extent that it's hurting people, but but I think that there are benefits to trade. And so how do you do that and also support workers? Um, and I think sometimes unions were slow in getting to that. Um, they were also sort of sometimes slow in dealing with competition, um, especially with United Auto Workers in the 70s, as we started to see the rise of, of Japan, um, especially in the car market, I think, both General Motors and the unions were not quick in trying to figure out how to compete against um, these new these companies that were now kind of making their way into the American marketplace. So, you know, there are always drawbacks to unions. And I think I always want to say that, you know, unions aren't perfect. Um, and some of those problems do need to be uh, lifted up. But I also think even as imperfect as they are, they do have a purpose in our society. Yeah. And one of the things, because people knock me and think I'm anti-union, I'm actually not anti-union. I don't think unions are a one-size-fits-all solution. I don't think they're this panacea where everything a union does is perfect because we know better with the record of that. I looked, this is one of the few things I think Europe actually does a better job than we do. Unions mm -hmm. are not as adversarial. They're not as political. Uh, they work more in partnership. They're more symbiotic. How did it become so adversarial between unions and the companies? And again, it can't all be just one or the other, despite the way we're told it is that it's just these evil, wicked companies. Look, companies got to make money too. 
Uh, how did this become so adversarial and to the detriment of the unions? Because we see the union membership. It's it's the lowest it's ever been. That's a good, a good question. I don't have a great answer to that, except that I think sometimes just in American society, we tend to be more adversarial um, as a in our nature, um, as opposed to kind of in, in Europe. I think sometimes some, some of the different um, ways that our different societies came out of, out of that, you know, my guess is, especially in Europe, um, it, well, in the United States, we have not really had a history of strong uh, socialist parties for, for one um, thing, whereas there has been a strong case of that. So part of adversarial relationship probably was shown more in the voting booth than it was in actually the workplace in, um, as it is here. It's not as much shown in the work on the voting booth, so it showed itself in the workplace. Um, so I think that's kind of where the difference is, um, at least it, it kind of a, a guess from what I can observe. Um, but I think that that's something that probably needs to change. I, I think that the adversarial approach doesn't, that might have worked in the 1930s and 40s um, when this was a new thing and part and companies weren't as amenable. But I think that we're in a different age now. And so I think that um, unions have to change with that and um, maybe look at what Europe is doing or to think about, I, I know that I believe it's um, Oren Cass who it works with um, American Compass, which is a conservative uh, think tank that um, tends to be more pro-labor, but thinks that we should have something that maybe is instead of working with one company that it's uh, the union is more based on a different industries um, that makes it a little bit less um, confrontational, but more kind of working together. Um, so I think that there, there is definitely room and necessity for unions to change with the times just because they exist. Doesn't mean that the way that they struck are structured now is the way that they should always be structured. Yeah, the old, uh, they call it the, the working guild or the trade guild model. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. We're talking to our friend Dennis Sanders. We're going to continue with him after the break. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about labor, union and otherwise. And also, he's got a great example of how labor and things change with Kmart and Sears a lot and the downfall of it, except in one place where it's still thriving. We'll talk about that when we come back. Our friend Dennis Saunders on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're having a good time talking to our buddy Dennis Sanders, but kind of a serious topic on labor and unions and things of this nature. Uh, one thing about unions that always strikes me, I think they're really misbegotten in where they're picking their battles right now. Uh, organized labor, especially big labor, they are all in on going against the gig economy, the uh, secondary economy, whatever you want to call it. Why do you want to alienate Look, unions are down to something like 10% of the workforce. The gig economy is up to something like 30% of the workforce. Why are you picking a fight with the very people that you're arguing that you want to come into your unions and all you're really doing is alienate them because they're like, look, leave us alone and let us work. This seems really misbegotten to me. That I totally agree with. Um, I think one of the worst things that I've seen, especially the, the law that came out in California, which I think wreaked havoc on a lot of gig workers, you know, I think part of it comes from this belief that they think that um, 
the gig economy is just exploitative. And so they think that, well, wouldn't you really want to just work in an office or, or in an industry or whatever, um, like everyone else? Um, what I think the unions don't realize is that the nature of work has changed. Um, there are a lot of people that want to work on their own. They want to be contractors. They, they want the, th the flexibility that comes with all of that. And so coming in with a law that basically messes, messes all of this up isn't helpful. And it really just makes, uh, makes more enemies against unions than um, what is necessary. I mean, if unions want to be of help in this changed economy, then what they should be about is trying to create guilds or things to that extent that would help people who, who do go into the gig economy instead of trying to basically mess up what they want to do, which is to work independently um, to, and to call their own hours. Yeah, here's where I depart from some of our labor and labor friendly brethren. I think you absolutely have a right to start a union. I've been a supervisor in a company that was non-union. We had it hanging on the walls. I've had, I've, I've facilitated the meetings for union reps to come into the non-union rep. We set them up in a break room. There's very specific rules how you have to handle those things. I, I've done all that. I've, I've interacted with them. I know how those things work. My thing is you absolutely have a right to have a union, but that also means you should absolutely have a right to not have to go through a union to make your livelihood. And that just seems to be the disconnect with some of the big labor folks and, and people that I know that are genuinely pro-worker and they really believe that that's the best thing to do. If you're just changing one tyranny of a company to the tyranny of a union, and especially if you have a union that also has the backing of the federal government, which all too often is the case nowadays, that's there's no way you can convince me that that's pro-worker because if the union has the backing of the government and you don't have a choice to be in the union or not, where's a worker go then? Yeah, and I agree. One of the things I remember growing up that I can just remember, even as a kid, I didn't like this, is um, the whole concept of a, I think they would call it a closed shop, where basically, if you took a job, you are automatically part of the union. And there was a part of me that was bothered by that, because you didn't have a choice of whether you wanted to be in the union or not. And I, I get what they're trying to get at with um, collective bargaining and all of that, but you've taken that person's choice of what they want to do out of their hands and just made them and has forced them to do something that they don't want to do. And I think, you know, that's kind of related to what's going on with the gig, gig workers is this belief that unions are good. So everyone should, should, can benefit and realizing that there is also choice in this. People don't have to join a union. Um, unions are voluntary organizations. And even in spite of all the good I think that they do do, and they do a lot, but it's good, they're voluntary. And people shouldn't be forced to be part of one if they don't wanna be part of one. And I think that's okay. That's part of, to me, that's part of what it is to be an American. It's a sense of choice of what we want to do. It's part of what's killing the unions too, that the uh, union yeah. was always supposed to be the voice of the worker. Well, everybody's got a voice now because they all have social media accounts. Like they can Google what their company's doing. They don't need their union rep to explain stock options to them. They all, has, has technology just kind of made part of what the traditional union was obsolete? They've made part of it. I don't think they've made all of it. Uh, um, and I think this is maybe where the initial pushback 
came when um, when I wrote to you a while back is the belief that because um, we have a more, um, I don't know, atomized society, um, social media, things that allow us to speak up, we tend to think that we have more power than we used to. And I think that there, there, in some cases that's true, but in other cases, it's not. You may not have the power to say, I would like to have better benefits or to deal with better health care. So there are some areas in some industries, not every industry, your one voice doesn't always um, carry when you're up against a management. And so that, that, that's where you would see a need for a union to kind of be that voice. Where I think the, I think the, the, the caveat is you have to want to be to have them be your voice. They can't just come in and be your voice. Um, that I think is wrong because that turns people off. People don't want to have something being done for them. And in some cases, they don't want necessarily a one size fits all thing. Um, so unions are still necessary, but in this day and age, in the age of social media, in the age where of a gig worker, it's not gonna operate like it did in 1968. Um, we're not that economy. And that's, I think, part of the problem of why unions aren't doing as well is because they haven't necessarily always changed with the times. And speaking of things that changed with the times, you've been writing about Sears and Kmart. It ain't 63 for them either, is it? No, it's not. It's, um, it is 2022 and they are almost on their way out. What got you on Sears? I mean, I know because I've worked with you on some of the pieces, uh, it's a great series, but there really is some microcosm type stuff in the downfall of Sears. And the story isn't all it's really cracked up to be. You've got a multi-piece series going on it. You're getting ready to release the sixth part of it by the time this comes out. Just nutshell it for folks, why this story is important. Why is it important to revisit it and make sure we actually have the story correct? Well, the interesting part of this story and I think maybe it's to look at what, how people look at it. Um, people tend to look at what Sears and, and Kmart's downfall as, you know, this is what happens with retailers. They do well and they, they go out of business. They make bad decisions and that's what happens. And that's what happened with Sears and Kmart. And that's part of the story. Most companies don't always, you know, they, they make mistakes. They, don't always keep up with the times. But that's not really the total story here. As I've kind of say, and probably have beat this horse to death, um, what a lot of has happened with um, Sears and Kmart has to deal with who has been their CEO, um, who brought, um, brought the two companies together in 2005, and that is um, Eddie Lampert. He is a hedge fund manager. And when he brought the two companies together, um, and I did an interview a while back with a retail journalist, Warren Schulberg, and he pretty much summed it up. His number one goal was to take money out of the company to give to shareholders. That's, that's what it was. So he didn't invest in keeping the stores up. So that's why you would, there were pictures sometimes of stores that looked incredibly shabby because they hadn't been updated probably since the first Bush administration. Um, and so he took money out that made both of those companies less um, competitive. 
and um, always made it sound like he had a turnaround plan and he never did have a turnaround plan. His whole plan was to take the money out um, so that it could be given to shareholders. And that that's kind of what sums up the story. Um, there's a lot of other things. And I think the, the bigger story and the reason I focus on Sears and Kmart one is because I think had he not been there, they might still be continuing. Um, but two is because I think of the role of people like um, hedge funds and private equity have when it comes to retail. And they've done a lot of damage with retail that has cost a lot of people their jobs and their livelihoods. And the contrast for you, and you bring it up in the latest series that you've been writing on, Kmart and Sears, they're actually doing okay down south of the border, believe it or not. Yes. Um, I wrote an article a while back um, about how Sears Mexico is doing well. Um, that part of the company actually is um, has become, I think, somewhat separate from Sears here in the United States. It's owned by primarily by Carlos Slim. Um, for those who don't know, Carlos Slim is probably one of the most, uh, one of the richest people in the world. Um, and he bought this, um, bought Sears Mexico, and um, they have invested in their stores. If you go into their stores, they're filled with um, items uh, for people to buy. Um, they are doing well. They're opening up stores uh, throughout Mexico, and I think even in some other um, parts of Latin America. Um, so it's an example, really, of someone who was interested in um, making a profit, but also providing a good service and providing customers with um, good merchandise to buy, um, which is a very different way of doing business um, like Sears did here in the United States. Why does retail resonate with us so much? It's changed a lot with Amazon, obviously. But retail really does become an identity kind of thing because it's where you kind of, that's most people's interaction with the economy, not to put too fine a point on it. But we talk about these big economic principles, but that's kind of the bleeding edge of it. And retail has really, really changed. And it's an interesting way to look into it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the reason that retail resonates is because there's also a social dimension to it. Um, you know, if you look at Sears again, I remember growing up in the in the 70s, how much Sears played a part in um, my life and probably the life of a lot of people in the working and middle classes. Um, you know, you got your lawnmower, which was usually a, a, either a craftsman lawnmower uh, from Sears. Um, you got appliances, um, your Kenmore appliances from Sears. There was a, a, a kind of a way of people kind of meeting one another, knowing about each other, um, people who um, started to work with either Sears or Kmart, and it was a, a good way of making a living. So there is all of this kind of social, I think, capital that also comes into retail that I don't always think you have with Amazon because it's, it's not, since it's not a physical encounter, it's a virtual encounter, it's a very different thing. I mean, how I relate to Amazon is very different than how I would have relate to Sears or to JCPenney or some other um, physical brick and mortar chain. And it's not just because the Amazon is a thing of convenience and the other thing was kind of a habit. And I know Amazon's a habit, but it's a different habit because it's a it's the old touch feel 
here kind of teaching method, it's it's more singular where it's just, okay, click it done. When's it going to show up? We talk about why customer service is so bad in America. There's probably something there we need to dwell into at some point in the future. Nothing wrong with your customer service, my friend. You always bring great information. Dennis Sanders, uh, let folks know where they can find you. You write at Ordinary Dash Times with us. You also appear on this program frequently. We get you every chance we get. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, where they can find that great multi-part series on Kmart and Sears. Sure. Um, They can find that series. It's found at uh, church and Maine. So it's all a one word. So church and then and A-N-D, Maine, dot substack.com. And you will see the series there. Um, so please give it a read and please share it with others um, because this is a story that really needs to be known. Um, I also have a podcast and that um, is called Enroute. And you can find episodes at enroutepodcast.org. And Enroute Podcast is all one word. Yeah, and it's a great podcast. I've been on it a couple times. I always enjoy it. Uh, you are somebody whose opinion I always value. I love hashing stuff out with you, my friend. Dennis Sanders, thank you for your time today, sir. You're welcome. We'll talk later. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Um, there's a long piece in the Washington Post written by Stephanie McCrumman, and I highly recommend you go read it. It's called Gutted. What happened when a Georgia elections office was targeted for takeover by those who claimed the 2020 election was fraud? It's a long piece. It's a detailed piece. It's what happened to local election office workers when these folks who are absolutely ate up with this stuff were absolutely convinced that bad things were happening and that they were the ones to solve it. It's too long to get into here, but I want you all to go and read this piece. Election workers are just normal folks. That's why we have our friend Guinea Coulter on. We have other elections folks on. We're going to have a lot of election folks on during this uh, election season for the midterms because we don't talk about the poll workers enough. Elections don't happen in a vacuum. Guinea calls them the magical ballot fairies. People have to put these things together. They have to work hard on them. They have to put work in for them. And they're not some magical species of person. They're people that live in your community. They're volunteers, especially in smaller towns and rural communities. These are folks you should know. When you go to your polling place, those poll workers and then the volunteers that help them out and the people at the elections offices are not some foreign species of people. They're in your community and you need to treat them as such. Yes, mistakes sometimes get made. Very rarely, criminal conduct happens. We have court cases. You can look them up. But the idea that we have these widespread corruption in the election system just isn't true. And when we do find it, it needs to be handled by the court system, not by you going vigilante. Read this piece. There's parts in here where they're basically having to cower in the basement of the building. They're talking about whether they need to bring their guns to work with them or not. People who have worked in these positions for decades and years and years and years, all of a sudden under siege by people they don't recognize that are coming in there, busting in doors, demanding to see voting machines. They don't even understand how the voting process works, but because they read something online, all of a sudden they're radicalized and think they know everything about everything. This sort of stuff's dangerous because they're showing up not in some place far away. They're showing up in the elections offices in your community with people you know who are running these election offices and they're harassing volunteers who just want to help their community be better. Elections in this country don't work without the volunteers and they don't work without the elections officials. Yes, if somebody does something untowards, we should deal with that. We should hold them accountable like we do everybody else. Yes, if there's a case 
of corruption or voter fraud or whatever, which does happen, we should root it out. We should prosecute it. We should make sure it never happens again. We can do that without painting a broad brush and beating down elected officials and election officials and the volunteers that make our system of government work at the basic level of how we vote. Don't get sucked into that madness because now you're just a vigilante harassing people or worse. And I fear it's a matter of time until somebody gets badly hurt by these folks that are so ate up by what they read online that they can't be talked to reasonably about how elections work in real life. More hotel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. We always end on a happy note. Let's go praise this woman way out Long Island, New York. Kathy Loshavano is many things to many people, a mother, a teacher, and a community member. This is from the Long Island Advance. Uh, she became the youngest teacher at this school district that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce at only 20 years old, but that was 30 years ago. Now that she's retired, Loshavio has given her time to help in her community. On Sunday, the VFW Hall in Medford, Loshavio was honored with three proclamations by the local office holders, which awarded her for her work with children. We want to support all the good in the community, and she is someone who is good in our community, said Lagos Dominic Thorne. Her list of contributions to the community include Kathy's Corner, where she returns to her roots as a teacher, reading, singing songs, and doing activities with elementary school children. She's also a member of the St. Sylvester's Columbiaites, vice president of the St. Sylvester's Club, a member of the Medford Taxpayers Civic Association. She's involved in fundraising for St. Sylvester's. Her fundraising and has raised donations for veterans of Medford, St. Charles Rehab Center, and the Ronald McDonald's Children's Association. Two town councilman Neil Foley described her as an individual everyone knows is the definition of charity. In addition to her charity work, Lo Shivano has small businesses where she does ceramic pieces that kids get the collar during her time as a teacher. She was active in volunteer work in the school districts and was instrumental in getting cursive writing back in the schools. Boy, there's a conversation we ought to have one of these days, said her brother, Jolo Shivano. I honestly can think of no other person deserving of this prestigious award, he said. While accepting her award, Lo Shivano returned to what she does best, supporting important causes. She took the time to urge people to donate items and baskets for the gift basket fundraisers for St. Jude. Lo Shivano also thanked her daughter and her grandchildren for being there. She explained that her inspiration for all her good work comes from love for her community. Quote, I've been a resident of Medford community for 65 years. It gives me great pride to volunteer for our community because Pat Med is where my heart is, she said. I plan on being here and doing what I always do. I love giving back to my community. That has given me so much and means so much for me. Always happy to highlight small community, small town folks doing good work like that. They are the bedrock of our communities. They're way more important than the people that just sit on TV, gassing each other at talking heads and all the arguing we do online. These people right here, like her, are what makes our communities go. And we should pay way more attention to them and we should emulate them and try to be more like them ourselves. That'll do it for her tell today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, same goes. Make sure you're subscribing so you get brand new episodes every weekday. You get the good talk interview segments every afternoon, like the one today we'll have with our friend Dennis Saunders. If you're watching on the Big Talker Network or listening, they have the Facebook page, they have an app, they have the Listen Live tab, our radio partners with Herdtel. Always happy to have their support. Make sure you leave a comment on the Facebook page. We do see those. 
leave comments and ratings on all of the platforms. It's very important to us. Let's folks know our little program is worth checking out. You can also contact us directly, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Send us an email, herdtellshow at the Twitter. You can DM us. You can also interact with us on social media. Make sure you reach out. Love to hear from you. We've done whole segments on the show just based off readers asking questions and listeners wanting more information or somebody watched something and had a question about it. Happy to work. It's a partnership. You don't listen. We don't have anybody to talk to. We're all in this together, folks. So till we see you again tomorrow on Herd Tell, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.